2: It's time to roll out the red carpet for, well, new carpet. Right now at the Home Depot, choose from hundreds of styles and colors from top brands. Plus, get free installation. So whether you want to brighten up your bedroom, add a little more cushion to your living room, or yes, add some VIP flair to your hallway, you can get the perfect carpet to match your mood with free installation. From the Home Depot, how doers get more done. Minimum purchase of 4 dollars Exclusions apply. U.S. only. See store for details.
0: Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and now heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It but check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at com. Today, Nate welcomes Roots music writer and historian Garrett Cash to kick off a new mini-series that will chronicle the history of gospel music in the United States. This first episode draws primarily on People Get Ready A New History of Black Gospel Music by Robert Darden and discusses African influences on gospel. Email us at Let It Roll Podcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy.
1: It's time to let it roll, or should I say, holy roll? Today we're kicking off a new series. I'm working with Garrett Cash. On a history of gospel music, which is one of the most ambitious things we've done on the show. Garrett, welcome back. Or welcome. We taped an episode before, but it's going to air later.
3: Well, it's good to be back in here for the first time, technically.
1: <laughs> <laughs> You're in two places at once. I know. It's amazing.
3: I, I don't know how I gained these abilities. It must have been all that gospel listening.
1: It does bring a certain magic uh, to yes, the air. Yes. And And this, yeah, without a doubt, this is some of the heaviest stuff we've dealt with. It's very difficult for multiple reasons. One, it's not something that I grew up listening to, unfortunately not my culture, um, which is a loss. My church was very anodyne. It, it was less a place of worship than a building you went to sometimes. And that was definitely to my detriment growing up. I went to other churches that were a bit more enthused, but none of them were, had the full full on uh, black gospel experience.
3: Right. My my experience growing up was my uh, father and mother were both big fans of uh, Christian and alternative music in the ah. uh, 80s and 90s. So they liked bands like the 77s, Daniel Amos, Adam again, et etc. So we always tried to go to churches that had a bit more of a uh, rock and roll element to them. So uh, certainly influenced by uh, the black church and black gospel, considering that rock and roll is a child of that. But uh, I too do not grow up with this specific music and culture. Like my father, uh, you know, I've talked to him about some of these artists that we've been talking about and listening to, and he says that he was aware of people like Shirley Caesar at the time, but you know, just wasn't a part of his orbit and never really listened to them. But you know, it, it, it's interesting going back and uh, discovering how much uh, dialogue was going on between all these different artists and musicians. Like how Andre Crouch is a huge influence on. All that you know, Christian rock coming out at the time in the seventies and eighties. So it's been an interesting journey, kind of seeing how, even though I didn't feel like I was necessarily growing up on this kind of stuff, it was still a big part of it in a lot of ways.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and my mom used to have Mahalia Jackson albums that we would listen to, you know, right next to her new Christy Minstrels albums and her Henry Mancini albums and her Time Life classical music. Um, series and so that
3: sounds like a goodwill record dig right there
1: <laughs> <laughs> she was a one woman goodwill record dig and had a beautiful <laughs> book bookcase with all that stuff in it and so you know i grew up on mahalia for sure but mahalia was like a prestige listen for my parents i got the feeling you know she's on columbia records you'd see her on the on the, the the a-list tv shows you know and she was on something that was an event and it's really interesting and we'll talk about this later you know mahalia actually came from a very earthy strain of of the black church and and had to fight a lot of resistance within the black church um to bring her music to life and and then she's catapulted into this american kind of on beyond pop she wasn't ever really pop but she broke out into the bigger culture. I mean, people who, like my uncle and aunt, who were, my uncle was a little more serious about his music, so he had a lot of, like, Frank Sinatra records and jazz records and Count Basie and stuff, but he'd have his Mahalia Jackson in there, too. So it was, you know, kind of an interesting background, but that's just one reason that it's difficult. Another reason that it's difficult is so much of the origins of the stuff that we're going to be talking about. Anything before, say... 1890 for sure gets really difficult to track historically because there was not music being recorded they invented the recording machines in the 1870s but nobody really turned to recording music seriously until the 1890s and black folks couldn't even hardly get a look in until the 1920s so you're getting into un unrecorded history and there's not a lot of written history slaves were being so systematically oppressed in the united states and we'll talk about what a heinous system chattel slavery was and yeah you know,
3: so this is a time where not only is the music not being documented uh you know properly for pretty much anybody i mean regardless of how popular you know even the you know white strains of popular music where of course we you know there's a lot of things we can't know exactly about that kind of music uh, also with the lack of recordings and whatnot but yeah you're talking about an oppressed people who you know this is a a folk tradition that uh, has come about through hundreds of years of uh musical involvement and uh you know you're you're just not going to be able to really fully understand exactly what a slave singing go down Moses would have sounded like in eighteen thirty five because there's it's it's impossible you know it's it's so far back in the past, and we we don't have the proper uh you know tools to be able to fully understand that thankfully, you know we do have a lot of interesting um descriptions of the way that the music was from people who heard it a lot of uh you know white people who were you know journalists you know heard it and gave varying degrees of you know uh, descriptions of it that we'll be looking at but uh unfortunately this music does come with a a shroud of mystery around it so uh, you know that that can be make it more interesting for people like us uh, in some sense but it can also make it a little harder to penetrate correctly
1: Yeah, no doubt about that. And there's also another thing that makes it hard is this legacy of tragedy and awfulness of which every American, mainly white Americans, are heirs to. And so much of our national wealth and our privilege was stolen from people from Africa, and it can be painful and upsetting. So trigger warnings all over the place if you're upset by hearing – our best understanding of the actual history of america and europe and africa you know better walk out now because i'm not going to pull any punches this was awful this was some of the worst crimes ever committed they haven't stopped we've gotten better obviously after the civil rights movement and arguably the jim crow apartheid era was better than slavery although they certainly tried to make it as bad as possible on black folks Um, you know, so there's this, this people accuse me sometimes of being a a guilty white liberal, you know, and I I won't cop to that, but I will cop to being ashamed.
3: (laughs) Yeah. yeah. (laughs) I'm right there with you. Like for me, uh, of course I was not there in 1840, you know, doing the things that these people did, but I'm aware that my entire Ancestry, lineage, place, and society, whatnot, et cetera. Is, you know, I'm basically a benefactor of something that happened that was extremely horrible that I had no control over. That and so you know, the, and of course I, I'm from the South. I mean, I'm from Georgia. You know, we, you know my family, uh, you know, I'm sure, uh, you know, owned land and all that kind of stuff back back then. I mean, I don't know the full extent of their involvement in any of this, but. Uh, you know, regardless of that, just as a, you know, Southern white man, there's this thing that uh, the great writer Steve Van Woodward calls the burden of Southern history. And I feel that burden greatly. You know, I, I, I'm i proud to be uh, from the South in many ways. I think that the South gave America its greatest music. I think that, you know, the South has, you know, been in many ways one of the best um you know, cultural products that America has had, but it has also also produced the most shameful aspect of our history. And, uh, you know, that's that's the burden that we have to bear. And I I think that the best way to uh, work our way through that uh, shame about our history and the burden of it is to look at it directly and, you know, talk about obviously something like this, where, I mean, this is something that is a Absolutely indescribable level of cruelty and pain that we can hardly imagine, and yet out of it comes one of the most beautiful things that America ever gave the world, and led to the you know many different genres and forms of artistic expression that America continues to give the world, or is all children of this spiritual music. So it's it's kind of amazing that something that was the product of one of the worst cases of inhumanity on the record, uh, has given us some of the most joy-filling art ever created.
1: Yeah, no doubt about that. And and I feel like, as a human being, you have to bear the guilt of all the worst things any worst human being has done anywhere, anytime. Ted Bundy, Adolf Hitler, whatever. That's us. You know, We did that. That's in, in us. Anybody yeah. could fall to those levels and do those horrible things. So everybody's got to check themselves at all times. Like, am I turning into a monster? Steph's telling me I got a cue, though. So let's hear our first song. This is um, Roll Jordan Roll from the movie 12 Years a Slave. Tell us why you picked this track.
3: I, this was actually the very first R-rated movie I saw in the theater. Uh, quite, quite You're a, such a youngin. Yeah, yeah I, I know. So so crazy. This was like 10 years ago or so. But yeah, first R-rated movie. And uh, boy, I picked a a, a rough one. But I I just thought that this moment in the movie was such a powerful moment because uh, I don't want to spoil anything about the movie for someone who hasn't seen it. But the main character of Solomon is a a man who lived in the North and was kidnapped into slavery from the North. He was not a coastal slave in the sense, you know, he was living in America in the North and was kidnapped down to the South. And uh, the movie basically describes his journey and trying to escape his slavery. And uh, this moment in the movie is kind of where he. Uh, recognizes a bit that in some sense, regardless of whether he gets out of the South or not, that because of the way that uh man's cruelty is, that he will always be a slave. And and so the the, the music in this scene kind of gives a, a, it's really a clip that you should watch if you can go watch it on YouTube, but it just gives you this sense that, uh, you know, he is um, resigning to his fate, you know, and that he is looking upwards to heaven, hoping for a better future there.
4: Yeah,
1: and it's also kind of the moment when he accepts the slave culture yes. that he's been resistant to as a northerner, kind of looking down on the southerners and resisting the African elements that are so still so present in it. So yes. yeah, really powerful mo- mo- moment from a, a pretty powerful movie. So this is Roland, Jordan Roll from 12 Years a Slave. Jordan, where John baptized three, where I walked the devil in hell says, Johnny, baptize me. I say, journey, roll, Jordan, roll. Roll, Jordan, roll. My soul will rise, ever Lord, for the year Jordan, roll. Well, some say John was a Baptist, some say, some say John was a Jew, I believe. but I say John was a preacher cause preacher. my Bible says so too. I say, roll, Jordan, roll. So that was Roll Jordan Roll from 12 Years a Slave. And I talked about the first half, the the sad half of of humanity, of, of we have to accept we're capable of these horrible things. At the same time, and I hope it's not uh, uh, impertinent of me to say to also take credit for great things that are accomplished and when I hear beautiful gospel music and feel its power and I've attended gospel services and, and when you feel that and when you're welcomed into a black church and I've never been to a black church that so wasn't extremely welcoming um, you can take joy and pride in in you know I'm a human being and human beings can do this and that's um, that's what it's all about to me. And this is to me, this is American family. You know, the African American Anglo Americans. We're in this by blood. We've been in this together for a long time, and we need to pull together and accept each other as family, in in every sense of the word. Yes. And you know, so that's kind of what we're working on here is just celebrating our family, and uh, and this incredible music. And and you know, the book we're going to be using for this episode and probably the next. Couple um, is called People Get Ready, a new history of Black gospel music by Robert Darden, and it's 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 a really good one from about 2004, I think. And one of his arguments is, you know, why study this stuff? And the first thing he points out is that you know the spiritual, and his book's mostly about gospel, but it starts with the spiritual, and we'll get into those distinctions in a minute. But it's it's not only the root of gospel; it's a key source for blues, jazz, rhythm and blues, rock and roll, soul, hip hop, and house music. Which is like everything.
3: <laughs> yeah, I mean, what 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 genre is not in some sense a child of those genres? <laughs> you know, like I mean, yeah. you you pretty much just summed up the entire course of twentieth uh, century, 20, 21st century music. I mean, it, it, anything that you can name is you know going to be in some sense a uh, a branch of one of those.
1: Yeah, the only the only sort of sister or cousin tradition that's separate from this is is. And I guess you could split it into two: as as the the traditions that are descended from opera, which is a way undersung genre and its influence in, in modern pop music uh, to this day. Opera was pop, and we'll get to that in future episodes, but not necessarily on this series. But I'm 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 going to get there with the opera.
3: Well, you know, I mean, Mahalia and some people like that had some opera elements. I'm sure we'll be bringing up.
1: But, yeah, 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 for sure. There's that. And then there's the whole minstrelsy, vaudeville, Broadway tradition, which obviously, like the rest of American history, minstrelsy is extremely tainted because it was a racist art form. And yet it's very complicated and nuanced. And I'll, and I'll be talking about that in, in other episodes. There were many Black performers. For many Black performers, it was their first chance to work professionally as entertainers. There were many great, the first great Black American songwriters were coming up. In the minstrel scene, it evolved directly into vaudeville, which cleared itself up most of those taints of overt racism, but in a complicated early 20th century ethnic melting pot way. But I'm not going to hang, you know, the Marx Brothers and, and Jack Benny and so many people that came out of vaudeville with with the shame of minstrelsy. Right. And even people like Al Jolson, it's complicated. Um, And there's people like Burt Williams who are black, who, you know, the first great black Broadway star. But so that's a different tradition. And you see it in the the musical and, you know, Disney movies and the whole bit. So that's a very vibrant. tradition and, and,
3: And, you know, not to go too far off of the tangent, but spirituals are still a part of that tradition in the sense that when you look at the history of minstrelsy, what you see is that a lot of that music that is being performed during the minstrel shows is in some level based on actual African-American music that was heard by people and then kind of transplanted onto the stage, kind of like the way that, you know, uh, Buffalo Bill Cody might have taken Native American traditions and done some kind of version of them as a show. The African-American music, you know, while it may not have been an authentic representation, it was some form of a representation. For instance, they were using banjos in these minstrel shows, and that was something that was taken from the African-American. And so, you know, there, there is still in the spirituals and early sort of uh, bubblings of the blues and field songs and shouts and things like that. You do have that coming into the minstrel stage and flowering into Broadway and vaudeville and whatnot, too. So it's still like I mean, it's a part of the DNA of all this stuff in some sense.
1: Yeah, that's very, very true. In fact, I'd argue that the African elements—that's the special sauce that made minstrelsy not just enormously popular in the United States, but the first American music to get attention in Europe. So, yeah, it is all connected. You can't even even separate it um, entirely. But let's go back to to the rest of Darden's list about why to study the spirituals. The, the he says they provide an uncensored unedited glimpse into the hearts and minds of american enslaved peoples which is incredibly important because these people were systematically denied a voice they were you know it was illegal to teach slaves to read and write some some did learn some some were taught but you know there was a systematic destruction of culture and this as part of the systematic denial of humanity. Because if you're going to do something as horrible as impose chattel slavery on people, you you know people tend to create these excuses and rationalizations in their head, and de- dehumanizing uh, the victims is is a key part of that. And I, I also want to mention. American chattel slavery was absolutely qualitatively worse than any other form of slavery that had been practiced in human history. We'd, we've had slavery throughout human history, but this idea of a race-based perpetual chattel slavery was not something you saw in Africa, not something you saw in Arabia, not something you saw in ancient Rome, ancient Greece, ancient Egypt, ancient India, ancient China, anywhere. This was a uniquely awful thing that evolved in the modern era modern meaning, post-Renaissance era for economic reasons at yeah. just incredibly brutal costs. And anytime you start hearing somebody say, oh, they had slavery in Africa too. In fact, we bought the slaves from black people, blah, blah, blah. That's the, the devil talking.
3: right there, Yeah, not- absolutely, absolutely. No, I, I completely agree. And I mean, when you, like you said, I mean, you know, that, that's something a lot of people don't know, don't realize that When you study ancient cultures and you see that, like, you know, in the Bible, they talk about, you know, slaves and all that that were being held in, you know, Israel and places, you know, all these ancient places, obviously, the, uh, you know, part of the whole system was uh, built on slaves, but it was a completely different form of slavery where a slave was more like what we would call a bond servant now. It's not like this, you know, absolutely horrific uh, form of slavery that, you know, comes into being during this, um, you know, kind of African-American, you know, diaspora period. It's uh, very, uh, very different in the sense that, you know, people are being torn from their home, torn apart from their loved ones, you know, uh, forced to work to, to the death, you know, being beaten and, you know, I mean, it's, you know, it's far, far, you know, off the deep end <laughs> compared to the stuff that had come before. This is, yeah. You know, the, 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 this this is like, you know, we, we, we went from, you know, OK, maybe we are jealous of you know our Jewish neighbors for how successful they are financially to the Holocaust. That kind of a jump. <laughs> like, yeah, really, really yeah. bad.
1: Yeah, extremely bad. And obviously there was brutality in every form of slavery, but it wasn't generational. It wasn't you're a non-person and your children are non-people and they're going to be owned into perpetuity. You know, in the Bible— uh, you know, you you uh, have have slaves that rise to be advisors to the pharaohs. You you read yeah. about so so many Greek uh, Greeks that you know become uh, wealthy, you know, and freed freed from slavery and become members of society and everything that was not in chattel slavery. But it's time to cue again, and this is um, "Swing Low, Sweet Chariot" by the Plantation Singers. Tell us why you picked this one.
3: I think that this song just sums up in so many ways the yearning for a um, savior of, you know, a a bringer of freedom to uh, the African-American people. And so many of the songs obviously hit on this topic, like Go Down Moses and whatnot. But I think that this one, a lot of people are familiar with this song in very different versions, ranging from Johnny Cash to, you know, one sung on sitcoms for some reason or another. But I think that this one, you know, really gives the voice that it originally had to the African American people that were looking for that—that that, you know, beautiful golden chariot to come down out of the sky and take them away. You know, just like you, you see in the Bible, and um, I think that that just you know is almost the perfect picture of what kind of yearning is going on in the heart of the spirituals.
1: Perfect. So this is "Swing Low, Sweet Chariot" by the Plantation Singers. And that was Swing Low Sweet Chariot by the Plantation Singers. And I feel like we're kind of talking about issues, and somebody's probably going, Get to the music, get to the music. We will get to the music, and we'll get to the music in depth, but we have to put it in this social context because you just have to. It's it's unavoidable um, in this context. And so, Darden's point about the value of the spirituals, because this is really the only record these people left us, is their songs. And these were communally written songs frequently. They um, also – and we'll talk a little bit more in detail about the conversion process of, of how the slaves were introduced to Christianity and how some of them adopted it. But there was always a twist. They always put it to their own purposes and uh, brought in African elements. But they um, – and they and they sang hymns, and we'll talk about hymns in a, a little bit as well. That came out of the English Protestant tradition, and I think Darden maybe errs a little bit in the direction of undercrediting the the importance of the English language and European harmony, harmonic ideas and these hymns in the mix. I, I feel like gospel music is an American music. It's obviously got a huge dollop of africanisms in it that's the majority of the ingredients but there's also a big chunk that came from the european traditions and that's what makes it unique and different and American and uniquely american but um there were also these songs that clearly were written by the slaves that are musically distinct from the hymns that the lyrical themes are clearly unique to this culture and so that's absolute gold and treasure and magic that we can hear directly from these people who the slavers struggled so hard to silence and culturally the slavers lost so big time it's not even funny the the slaves won the the free people won and and that's that's the inspiring part about gospel to me i mean it's this It's just like the Bible, you know, it's just like Moses leading the Jews out of Egypt. It's so powerful when you overcome um, this kind of oppression and brutality. And that's what's inspiring is that people can overcome these horrific circumstances and come out of it with this magical, powerful, inspiring music that has absolutely set the tone, uh, you know, for this entire century and the century before and the century before that, you know, this is where into the third century when African-American music has been one of the most exciting musics in the entire world and really dominant over the whole world. So, and then his second point is that um, another reason to study it is to understand the psychic damage caused by slavery and Jim Crow and study the most powerful contemporary folk expressions of those most harmed. I mean, if you want to know, how bad something was or or what something was really like listen to the people who suffered from it and who were inflicted on it had it inflicted on them and you know that this this is it and that that's a powerful lesson to just shut up and listen and and try to understand and then the third point he says is to truly understand american music you have to understand the spirituals and gospel and he quotes the great czech composer dvorak who was Really prescient in the late 19th century, he he had incorporated folk musics of his people into his music, and and other composers like Liszt and others had done that as well. And he came to America and zeroed in on the 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 Negro melodies, as he called it. And he said, in the Negro melodies in America, I discover all that is needed for a great and noble school of music. This must be the real foundation of any serious and original school of American composition. And he was so right. He had no idea that the whole composer-orchestra tradition was going to be um, bypassed early in the 20th century, and that this pop and folk traditions were going to be the dominant source. But I don't think you can deny that America has produced a great and noble school of music, and Forak was absolutely right this is where it came from it came from this infusion of african musical ideas and culture into this uh english anglo Anglo anglo-american culture and that that combination absolutely you know you can't overstate the importance of this
3: absolutely (laughs) and uh I like the um, quote that Darden gives too from John Lee Hooker, where he says um, the blues come from spirituals. They're the background of all music, and it, it, it's just amazing how this genre, this uh, you know folk expression and tradition, really becomes the entire core of American music and it's unfortunate to me that I mean we, you know, and this is a perfect time for this series to start uh because we're recording this at least during Black History Month. And uh I, I think that it's just amazing to think that, you know, what has happened here is that, you know, African Americans have, you know, been uh at first aliens to America, have been transported and, you know, thrown into this land, you know, against their will. And instead of you know, all the different ways that that could have gone from there where they are continued to be alienated or, you know, go like just leave or, you know, hate it, you know, all, all the various things that, you know, responses that you could have, um, they continue to, you know, flourish their own personal expression and creativity to the point that it creates a tradition that becomes a um, completely integral part to the explosion of popular music in the 20th century that we see and how beautiful that is that, um, you know, facing this suffering and hardship rather than uh, just, you know, kowtowing, bow- bowing down to it they, and, and, and letting themselves be steamrolled. They continue to have this spirit that gives birth to this music and not just this particular music, but all music. And I think that it's kind of sad that that doesn't get pointed out as much when people talk about the history of American music, or you know, the um, the, the kind of journey to where we are now in terms of African Americans in this society. And uh, I think that this is one of the greatest achievements uh, of, of theirs and of America's in general. I mean, you know, like I think uh like it was Ken Burns that said that the things that america will be remembered for is the constitution jazz and baseball which uh i throw the spirituals in there you know in that in that discussion i think that it's uh something that is that important that it it, you know there is no jazz without the spirituals and one
1: absolutely thing
3: comes from it you know if you're going to talk if you're going to throw music in there i say throw the spirituals in there so you know this is where we get the foundational elements of all-american music and i know we're going to talk more about the particulars but i mean you have improvisation comes from this you have call and response you have blue notes you have the the rhythm of african music i mean without all those things where is rock and roll and pop and uh you know new wave punk anything you know that the girl group music whatever like you the, this music can't exist without improvisation, call and response, rhythm, et cetera. Um, You know, one of the the main characteristics of it is improvisation, which is where jazz comes from. So I think that if people really care at all about discovering the uh, roots of the music that you listen to, this is really the place to start.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And let's take a quick break from our sponsor. When we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about Gospels' African roots. And yeah, you touched on improvisation and, and Darden has like four elements that he, he calls the foundational elements of authentic American music. And improvisation is one. And you got to keep in mind that is such a break from the European tradition, the composers, you know, Mozart and Chopin and others, improvisation was definitely a part of their mix and their creative process. And, you know, people that went to see Franz Liszt play, which was, you know, this huge pop phenomenon, in um europe would watch him improvise but at the same time the music was written down for orchestras and the, and the improvisation was systematically sort of squeezed out of it by the time you get to a symphony orchestra there's no room to improvise you know you have to play the notes as written i mean they they obviously put their own interpretation into it but there's nothing like what you see with Louis armstrong or jimi hendrix for that matter where somebody is allowed to just go and and you know here's 16 bars do whatever you want just come back in you know wrap it up on, on time that's that's a uniquely uh african thing and they talk about the lyrical improvisation you know european explorers that went to to africa explorers slash exploiters they went to africa documented how the African people that they interacted with would make up songs about everything that happened as it happened. And the Europeans were just amazed by this. I mean, it's one thing to see somebody improvising piano notes, but somebody else who's making up a story in a song with lyrics. And this is something you see, you know, Lightning Hopkins famously did that, I think, the first time chris strachwitz of our Hooli records saw him playing in a club he starts singing about you know this white guy who's coming to see him play and that has been a key element you see it in hip hop with freestyles and so that's you know this this unique element and then there's the call and response element and this is something else where you know Darden talks about how in africa there's no separation of performer and audience music is a way for people to come together not for a way for people to sort themselves into a hierarchy. And so you know Europe had been through the whole feudal uh, imposition. and And there's a lot of sort of historical scars on the European people. And you know they built it into a virtue. They built these these very formal edifices. And 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 I'm not trying to knock European music at all. I think Western European music is is one of the great triumphs in human history. Nonetheless, there are elements that were not present in it. And call and response was one of those. And call and response is this echo of that African communalism. Where music is about everybody singing and not about elevating some people above other people and, and putting them in this performer category. And then another thing that, that he talks about is blue notes. And what that is is you know you got your keys on your keyboard and you, and you play these notes. And Europeans, uh, you know, J.S. Bach figured out the well-tempered clavier and and they set these notes. These are the notes we will play. But those are not all the available musical sounds. You could you could divide the scale into a lot more than eight notes. You could you could divide it into seventeen notes, twenty five notes. There's all kinds of probably more even numbers than that. But you know, in the African system, they had a lot more um, microtones, and they, and they were very attuned to pitch. And so when they were put into Anglo American context they didn't want to stay in the lines they wanted to draw outside the lines and that's where you get things like slide guitar and and the melasmas that the the note shifting and note bending in the singing so when you talk about blue notes that's that's what you mean is that they flat flatten the seventh and they they modify the scale so you can even do it on a piano with those regulated notes you just play a different set you add a different note or two move a note up a half step or whatever um from the scale and then rhythm the the Europeans defined a composition as melody, harmony, and lyrics, and left out the rhythm. And it's really interesting to watch classical trained musicians try to deal with African-based rhythmic music and how lost they are. Rhythm was just sort of taken for granted and not seen as as a key element of music. And in Africa, particularly sub-Saharan Africa, there's this incredible tradition of really complex polyrhythm and you know you see this especially in like afro-cuban music where they use the clave to as a as a as a rhythmic key to tie in people that are playing multiple different rhythms but because there's one person playing a, a central rhythm they can all play off of works very much like harmony does in the western system so this incredibly rich um system of music of rhythmic music came out of africa and um you know, so it's these 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 are the the big four elements that, that Darden identifies as as key contributions coming out of Africa, and then then he goes into kind of the the African roots of gospel and some of the cultural stuff. And there's another thing, and and, and I got a lot of this from Ned Sublet, who is kind of the historian in English in the English language of Afro-Cuban music. He's also a big scholar of of the history of music in New Orleans and he's gone on to become a scholar of the heinous slave breeding trade in America that that we stopped importing slaves at a certain point in large part because people like George Washington and Thomas Jefferson had played out their land and couldn't grow tobacco to a profit anymore in Virginia but they could breed slaves and sell them down south to New Orleans and Georgia and Mississippi for cotton and sugar productions and uh anyway ned sublet has become the scholar of that but but first his work on the cuban music he really explained the differences there's two broad categories of african music there's sub saharan which means south of the sahara and then there's sahel or saharan music which is north of the sahara and we're mostly going to be talking about sub-Saharan music in this because that's where most of the slaves came from. That's where the polyrhythm uh, music came from. But I want to sh- kind of give a shout-out to the music from north of the Sahara that Darden, I think, kind of undersells a little bit because Sublet says that that's where the swing element and where the blue notes kind of came from. That that And if you listen to Arabic music, you can hear it, or Indian music too, That that, that these tangy blue notes kind of came from that also the tradition of the uh singer with a string instrument doing story songs the griot. that's 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 something from north africa as well and sublet argues that north american slaves had more of that influence because the spanish having liberated themselves from muslim african conquerors and for the late 1400s were just refused to have any slave that had any Islamic culture. They didn't want any part of that. They were afraid of that, and they um, banned it so that they more of those folks were sent up here. And it's time to cue our next song. And this is this is a jubilee. This is "Oh Mary, Don't You Weep, Don't You Mourn" by the Fisk Jubilee Singers. Tell us just a little bit about the Fisk Jubilee Singers and why you picked this track.
3: Uh, we're going to get a lot more into it, but uh, basically, Fisk Jubilee Singers were kind of the first popularizers of jubilee music in america or uh, spiritual music i mean in america because what they did was they took what were these kind of inchoate uh spiritual songs that maybe had varying versions or uh different lyrics you know, these were songs that, you know, a lot of times had codes in them that there was all sort of variations to them. And they sort of took uh, these versions that they could then sing to people who had never heard it before, mainly white audiences and tour the music in such a way where they sort of smoothed out the rough edges of the uh, folk Elements of spiritual music and turned it into an almost semi classical form. And so they're singing these spiritual songs in a way that has a lot more of these European song tradition elements to it, where there's not as much improv- improvisation. Uh, the lyrics are a lot more set in stone. They're not necessarily improvised uh, on the spot like we've been talking about. Uh, so it is a kind of the first attempt by African Americans to present their music to a uh, kind of bigger white pop audience, and this is a great example of what that sounded like uh, very early on, because this is a recording of the Fisk Jubilee Singers from the 20s. They got started a, around the 1870s, so they they had been around for a while, but this is one of the earliest recordings we have of them.
1: Alright, this is the Fisk Jubilee Singers doing Oh Mary, Don't You Weep, Don't You Mourn. I don't know what my mother wants to stay here for. She's no word no friend to her. I don't know
0: what my mother wants to be here for. word and no friend to her.
1: And that was the Fisk Jubilee singers from the 1920s doing "Oh Mary, Don't You Weep, Don't You Mourn. Yeah, and beautiful stuff. And you can hear that they were making this conscious effort to assimilate. And there's a certain amount of controversy in that. There's uh, There's been conflicts within the African-American community about how to – preserve their music, how much to try to adapt, how much to try to sort of impress white people with, hey, we can do your music as well as you, which many African-American performers have succeeded at and and made it in the classical uh, music business. And people like Paul Robeson, And Others obviously showed, yeah, we can do this, we can do anything, Um, but there's this other tradition like I was talking about with Mahalia Jackson that kind of goes back more uh, to the ring shouts and the the slave and African culture in a less filtered form. But I want to give the Fisk Jubilee Singers just a huge shout out because they were the first non-minstrel performers – black performers to make it as professionals on the stage and they played for queen victoria they toured europe they were a big big deal so you know um major shout out to them and they were trying to accomplish something specific and they did so even though it's not necessarily the main tradition that we're going to be following jubilee is a very important part of this history but now let's start talking about the sub-saharan music because um this is where it really gets fascinating and and One thing that that I learned in this that really surprised me, because Africa is one of the most diverse continents on Earth. There's more language families on Africa than everywhere else on Earth combined. There's more genetic diversity in Africa than there is in any other continent. So I was really surprised to learn that music scholars who study different types of sub-Saharan music find that there's overwhelming commonality. This guy, Alan Lomax, who's most famous as uh, a documenter of American music. He and his father, John Lomax, traveled the country. They they went to prisons and uh, plantations and documented, you know, blues singers and country singers and gospel singers and tried to document authentic American folk music. But he also had this theory called Cantrometrics, which was an attempt to objectively analyze music and look for commonalities, look for identify certain musical traits rate them on a scale and then you could use that to compare say you know the music of a certain tribe in africa with the music of a certain plantation in america and see how they compare and this has been controversial in the ethnomusical field but i kind of i'm kind of with ted joya in that in believing that there are these commonalities. Anthropologists for a long time have wanted to deny that there are these commonalities. You have to speak of every single culture as a completely unique entity. I don't think that's quite true. And and Lomax's Cantrometrics alleged to prove or attempt to prove or they did the analysis, and this is what they found using their methods. And he said, Lamech said, the main traditions of Afro American song, especially the old time spiritual, are derived from the main sub Saharan African song style model. And Africa is seen to be the most homogenous song style area in the world. So, this musical culture that developed in sub Saharan Africa was so powerful, it communicated across these literally unbridgeable gulfs there are places in africa where you know you can have people living in one valley and the people in the next valley over literally cannot communicate with each other because of geographic and physical obstacles poisonous thorns dangerous animals rough terrain etc so that you have people evolving these very distinct cultures very close together because they can't communicate and yet the music you could hear over the mountaintops and and that music permeated this whole area certain musical traits permeated all of sub-saharan africa and um and that's really just amazing to me and and darden kind of argues that that it took a music that powerful a musical tradition that powerful to survive the um systematic attempt to annihilate the culture of the african people that were were dragged over to america in chains so that. There's kind of a holy grail element in this to me, that like they took this treasure. And this treasure was also their weapon and their defense and and allowed them to survive the horrible experience of being enslaved and then allowed them ultimately to culturally triumph uh and bring this magical music to the whole world.
3: Yeah, and it it just speaks to, of course, as we've kind of gone over how the music in some sense has this uh you know, communal aspect where anybody is able to participate in it, the call and response means that there is no musician and audience, everybody gets to be a part of it. And if you know the one or two or three songs that everybody does, then, you know, you can do your own version of any of it. I mean, you know, they like like you said, these guys would um, come see these tribes, and they would start singing a song like Oh, Nathan came to see our tribe, and he stubbed his toe, and it was funny. You know, they'd just start singing something like that about something that literally just happened, and it's like, wow, you know, I, this this would be completely uh, foreign to someone from the European music tradition, where it has to be, you know, composed by a, you know, a, the auteur, the composer, uh, and th- that kind of strength in the community with their songs is what allowed it to. Uh, you know, travel that far, to continue to spread, to grow, um, as you said. And I think that it's the, um, basically it's the power of the music itself. I think the music is pretty much, I mean, you know, my perspective is is that this music, the uh, the most basic core elements of it are basically god breathed and God-given to man, and that we have been the, the bears of it. And it has been so potent and so, uh, you know, like important to our lives and the way that we live and think and and uh, interact with our fellow man, socialize. That it, it's impossible for it to die, and that it, that that once it came into the world, that it was going to survive absolutely anything, and not only survive but thrive.
1: Absolutely, and let's hear our final song. This is uh, the late great Sam Cooke doing a version of the old spiritual. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen.
4: Nobody knows the
2: trouble that I've seen ¶ Nobody knows my sorrow ¶ Nobody knows the trouble that I've seen ¶ Glory, hallelujah.
1: Nobody knows. And that was Sam Cooke doing the old spiritual Nobody Knows the Trouble I've Seen. Why'd you pick that particular recording?
3: It's from the album that Sam Cooke did called Night which is one of his greatest recordings, in my opinion. It's a kind of a low key recording compared to most of the uh, work that he had done for RCA Victor. He was kind of in a mold where he was being produced uh, a little bit more like a pop uh, artist. You know, his music was made a little bit more with white audiences in mind uh, at this point, because soul music is kind of not quite the force that it will be once uh, Sam dies. Uh, So there's not a whole lot of uh, recordings that we have of Sam in a little bit more of a low key, more intimate setting. And that album does a really great job of, Uh, showing a lot of his musical uh, influences and taste, And I think that that song represents on the album this uh, knowledge of his coming from the gospel and spiritual tradition. Of course, Sam Cooke was primarily known as and successful as a gospel singer prior to his transition to pop. And so it's interesting to hear him sing a song like that, which is a spiritual song that then becomes popular in that era with singers like Mahalia Jackson and Roy Hamilton singing it. And you know now it's almost like a uh, full circle moment where Sam Cooke is singing pop by singing this song. But it really is a song that goes all the way back to his deepest roots of gospel and spirituals.
1: Yeah, it's a really fascinating thing. And people like Louis Armstrong would do that song, Paul Robeson. You know, it was very much sort of a part of black performers who had crossed over and reached a white audience. It was sort of a tradition to go back and do the spiritual numbers so it takes on kind of this weird cruft of pop tradition and yet ironically it goes back to the to the earliest days the, the this history gets so fractal and complicated and 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 there's always an ironic twist and everything i did want to correct on one little point just not all european music was was composed and written there was plenty of folk music and and street oh, music going on. Of course, yeah, yeah. I just just yeah, wanted... yeah.
3: Well, yeah, and, and I'm I'm speaking in generalizations when I say yeah. that. Yeah, there were the, the 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 most popular music that would have been enjoyed by upper crust society and whatnot would have been this classical music. But of course, every tradition there's some kind of folk music, dance music, uh, reels. Uh, you know, there, That's that's a whole different uh topic. That of course then leads to you know Appalachian music country all that kind of stuff when that comes to America so yeah
1: absolutely I just uh, wanted to for the people that are out there nitpicking I wanted to pop that bubble (laughs) before they get worked up
3: yeah but you'll you'll get your time nitpickers we'll we'll go back to that
1: (laughs) (laughs) no doubt no doubt and so there's some other interesting things that Darden talks about African music like he talks about how it's impossible to separate religious and secular music in Africa because it is all religious and it is all secular. And at first that almost sounds like a tautology, like does that mean anything? But then when you really think about it, you realize it's a whole different way of looking at the world. And and it's, it's a more ancient and traditional way of looking at the world. And that you sort of realize when you think about it, when you look at world history, it's kind of the Europeans, particularly European Protestants, who drew this stark line between secularism and religious religious um, life. And in Africa, that line hadn't been drawn. And so everything is holy, and yet everything is also workaday and real. And that that's a very important concept. And and I think that that kind of leads to African American musicians. Crossing all kinds of lines all the time, you know, whether it's bringing blues elements into the church like Thomas A. Dorsey did or taking church elements and bring them into pop music like Ray Charles did. uh, This willingness to break down barriers because they just don't see barriers. This culture didn't have those barriers. And, you know, it's really interesting. Another big thing.
3: That's one of the most important uh, through lines, I think, in this, that there is no secular, uh, religious divide. I mean, and, and that's the way that really it's taught to be, you know, through scripture and whatnot is that, you know, becoming a Christian does not mean that you suddenly have a double life of, you know, Christian and person who goes to work and lives in a secular world. It's that, you know, you are just a Christian who goes to work, you know, and, and all that kind of stuff, you know, you, uh, like everything that you do, uh, like one of my favorite quotes from the, uh, great English thinker C.S. Lewis was that, you know, I, uh, see, you know, every, and I'm totally paraphrasing here, but uh, he basically said that, you know, I Christianity is like the sun, and and that I see everything else by it, you know, everything that I see, you know, is because of the the sunlight, the the, the sun giving it, and that I see everything through it. So, you know, you, you have this worldview that colors everything that you see and uh, every way that you think about something. So, you know, if I'm going to go and write a song about sex, then I'm writing a song, you know, through the eyes of someone who's a Christian that, you know, engages in this and writes about it. You know, it's not it's not a totally separate thing for me. And that's the way that it would have been for, you know, people like Ray Charles Prince Marvin Gaye is that they have this, you know, of course, there, there may be some, you know, uh, complications to the the way that they feel about this. But, you know, they're they're famous for blurring these lines. And that goes all the way back.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's something that they were introduced to in America, this split of secular and religious. And you we're gonna see it through the history of this music because spiritual spawn not only gospel, but they spawn the blues. And and gospel and the blues have this weird relationship. It's very much like sort of Cain and Abel, because a lot of folks viewed the blues as some sort of evil music that needed to be kept out of the church. And yet they couldn't. People like Thomas Dorsey keep bringing these blues elements into it. And um, but this Manichaeism, this this duality, this good, bad uh, split is a very European kind of thing. And or mono, it goes back to 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 the religions of the Mediterranean, you know, Manichaeism right. and, and Zoroastrianism and Christianity all, all have that thread.
3: Right. Mm-hmm. And, and just to briefly quote um, Hansonia Caldwell, who wrote a, a book about African American spirituals, uh, she said, and I thought this was interesting, she said that uh, spirituals is an omnibus term because there's a lot of different subcategories under it. Uh, people used to sing songs as they worked in the fields, in the church, this evolved into the gospel song in the fields, it became the blues. So she's kind of saying that this is really the same thing. It's just where you sing it, you know, what What it is depends on where you're singing it. <laughs> you know, is it yeah. singing it in the fields? OK, it's blues. Are you singing in the church? Well, now it's gospel.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's that's a pretty good rule of thumb yeah. for sure. And another thing, um, Darden quotes this guy, Samuel Floyd saying that the aim of African music has always been to translate the experiences of life and the spiritual worlds into sound, enhancing and celebrating life thereby. And yeah, that's that's why you see this music documenting so many sort of quotidian elements of life that other people had felt weren't worth documenting, or some people felt weren't worthy of being documented. But But the African musical tradition was broad enough to encompass kind of a really wide range of experiences. And he also points out there's few songs without words in the Sub-Saharan African music tradition. So even though they've got this super rich, super complicated polyrhythm sort of drum orchestra thing going on, um, they rarely had just instrumental features. So something like jazz that evolved into long instrumental features, that's very much sort of coming from the European tradition because it was it was not common uh, for African music, particularly sub-Saharan African music, to be purely instrumental. And then we get into the rhythm, which is absolutely, like I was just saying, the secret sauce of of sub-Saharan African music: a strong emphasis on percussion instruments and Darden says the essence of African music is rhythmic tension. And by that, we mean polyrhythm. And polyrhythm means multiple rhythms playing at the same time. You might have somebody playing on a three count, playing with somebody who's playing on a two count or a four count. But, you know, you do the math and you find the common denominators, and those can fit together.
3: So what and you're I, saying is that we can think African music for trial mask replica.
1: <laughs> I think you have to, yes. <laughs> Without a doubt, without a doubt, <laughs> my Captain favorite
3: Beepfart. gospel album.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Captain Beefheart was definitely a student of, you know, especially jazz and blues, but but also gospel, and, and yeah, put his own his own twist on it. But yeah. the other thing that that you can't separate in African music is that dance was always part of the music. And that's something that sort of had been crushed out of Europeans a long time ago. The Catholic Church has a long history of not approving of dance and physical expression, and that never happened to Africans. And, and you know, the, there's the, the, the sort of racist stereotype that white people can't dance and all black people can dance, which, you know, I know plenty of white people can dance like Fred Astaire and Gene Kelly, et cetera. And I've known sadly some black (laughs) folks who can't dance any better than I can. But, you know, as a rule, it just comes easier to, to folks of African descent because they never had that crushed out of them. Music and dance were always connected. And it was also always connected to their spirituality. Sterling Stuckey has a quote that Darden throws out there for the African dance was primarily devotional, like a prayer. And, um, I think that's really hugely important. And, you know, one of these tensions between the dominant Anglo culture in America and and the sort of uh, subversive African culture elements has been this notion that black music is too unrestrained or it's too sexual and these these are bad things. But so much of that is just in how you perceive it and how. What the con- context and connotations are when African people dance in a sexual way, they're celebrating life. They're celebrating fertility yes. and they, they're not – they don't have this shame tradition that has come uh, down to us from Christianity and it's just a joyous expression of life. And, and, so that,
3: uh, and this is you know two, two things that have been uh, very odd – traditions to come from european christianity is uh you know dancing is not good and uh you know sex you know is not good in some sense uh and 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 this is something that you know always i find strange when you actually go and read scripture i mean you know there's did you know there's a whole book in the bible that is about the joy of sex it's called song of solomon of course the, the i mean the entire thing like the whole purpose of that book is how great sex is uh, I, I think that pretty much anybody, you know, who would sub- subscribe to that kind of, you know, very very uptight kind of mindset, you know, in the in the European world would would have found that book scandalous, and yet it was on their shelf. Uh, and, and, yeah. and and you know, you have lots of dancing in the scripture. I mean, you know, uh, one of the most famous examples is David, who, you know, danced unashamedly before the Lord, uh, you know, basically like a crazy man is kind of how it's described, like people kind of thought he was crazy when he was doing it. And, uh, you know, that that kind of spirit, I see a lot more in this African tradition, you know, because they embrace these aspects. And I think that, you know, like, one of the things that talks about in Scripture, too, is that, uh, you know, God does not like uh, fake worship. He doesn't like it when you, you know, just kind of put your hands up in the air and you're pretending like you're worshiping at him just to look good or whatever. Like, he wants you to really mean it. Like, he He would rather you, like, do less and actually mean it than do more and not really mean it. And I think that, you know, this kind of tradition of, you know, really letting loose and dancing and praising and celebrating all the good things he's given, whether it's food or, you know, sex or whatever, that you know that's the thing that's going to you know please him more because uh you know you really mean it and you're really expressing that and um i i love the idea that dance is you know worship because you know i i fully subscribe to that i think that you know uh, when when people you know dance for god that that's just as much worship as anything and uh i i, I like how you know what we uh, see so much through the thread of this is that you know when people get together and they're celebrating or they're um, or they're praising or worshiping you know like and, and you could call that a secular or religious split uh, you know both of them involve dance you know like you go to the church and you're dancing before the Lord and you go to you know the party or whatever where someone's playing a uh, you know like a reel or something like that and and there's dancing there. So uh, again you're you're looking at this idea that what's sung in the field is the same thing as sung in the church what do you dance in the field is the same thing you dance in the church you know and 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 that's going back to this whole breaking down the dualism aspect and and why I love the idea of the uh ring chat which we haven't really touched on yet if you want to talk about that
1: Yeah we'll get to that we're going to pause now and when we come back we're going to talk about the diaspora and the the slave voyages to America and what happened to these people when they were brought into this new environment, how they interacted with Western music and Western culture, how they were uh, exposed to and converted to Christianity, et cetera, et cetera, when, when we come back. So for Garrett Cash, I'm Nate Wilcox, and this is Let It Roll.
0: Keeping your feet warm, dry, and comfortable is top priority with people from all walks of life. Boltfoot.com features 100% American-made socks with a wide array of styles so even the most discerning sock connoisseur can find their perfect pair. Nate wears Boldfoot socks on his tiny little feet when recording because they keep his toesies cozy. The best part is that 5% of all proceeds are donated to charities for veterans. Boldfoot.com, grown here, sown here. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Roll Cast and check out our website at Podcast.com. Next week, Nate and Garrett return to continue the discussion of gospel in America with a look at the origins of the spiritual. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com.
2: Time to roll out the red carpet for, well, new carpet. Right now at the Home Depot, choose from hundreds of styles and colors from top brands. Plus, get free installation. So whether you want to brighten up your bedroom, add a little more cushion to your living room, or yes, add some VIP flair to your hallway, you can get the perfect carpet to match your mood with free installation. From the Home Depot, how doers get more done. Minimum purchase of 4 dollars Exclusions apply. U.S. only. See store for
4: details.